Well, this week uh, we're going to be in chapter 6. Last week we did uh, chapters 4 and 5, and I've called this one His Wonders to Perform. And the reason for that is there's, on the back of your handout is a, uh, on the left-hand side is a poem written by William Cowper in 1774. And this poem is going to be important this morning because not only is the title um, derived from this poem, but it's, you're going to discuss this poem around your uh, table during discussion time. So I, I want to read just a portion of it to you. It says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Now, one of the things that I want us to wrestle with this morning is this idea of his wonders to perform. Here, here's my contention. Um, we can read the Bible, we can read the story of Esther, and we can um, pick out the wonders. We can go back and read the Exodus and we can pick out the wonders, the miracles, the, the incredible things that God has done. The Bible is full of stories of miracles and wonders of God, but the problem is how many do we see in our own life? And I think part of the problem is that we have a limited definition of what it means or what a wonder is. What is a wonder of God? What is a miracle of God? Uh, and I think we need to expand our parameter because sometimes we think it has to be um, healing from cancer, which is a miracle, which is wonderful, which is what we should all pray for if we get a diagnosis of cancer. But what is a wonder of God? What is God doing and what should we expect to see God doing that uh, we would pray for, uh, long for, expect, and then see? And so today, the story, this is my favorite chapter in the entire book because it, it's it's kind of funny. Uh, it's got um, God's vengeance, which we all love God's vengeance, right? When it's directed to somebody else. And, and we love payback. We, we love to see the bad guy get payback. You know, if you're watching a movie, you love to see the, the bad guy get payback. Well, we get to see that this morning uh, in the story. So I love this chapter. But what I want you to look for as we dig into it is... What is God doing? What are the wonders that God is performing in this story that are not necessarily big, but maybe just kind of small that um, as you look at it, and sometimes we see wonders in retrospect, in hindsight, we look back and go, wow, that was God. Well, we're definitely going to see that this morning, but just be looking for those as we dig into the story. Here's our definition for providence this morning from Tony Evans. He says this, Providence is the hand of God in the glove of history. It is the work of God whereby he integrates and blends events in the universe in order to fulfill his original design for which it was created. It is God sitting behind the steering wheel of time. So he's used two, two different metaphors, a hand and a glove. If you have a glove and there's no hand in it, it's basically just a piece of cloth or leather. It, it doesn't do anything. But God's hand is inserted and suddenly the, the glove takes life. Same thing true of he's the, he's the driver behind the steering wheel. He is directing where the vehicle goes. Providence refers to God's governance of all events so, so to, as to direct them toward an end. It is God taking what you and I would call luck, chance, mistakes, happenstance, and stitching them into achieving his program. This definition fits perfectly for today's chapter as we dig into chapter 6 of Esther. 
So the hand of God. We need to learn to see the hand of God. But it's not easy. Uh, it does take practice to see the hand of God because we're not wired to see the hand of God. We, we are fed a heavy dose of just it's the way life goes. That's just life. Um, and, and I say that all the time to people. I say it to my kids. You know, my, one of my daughters or one of my sons will call and say, you know, this, this happened today and they'll be in a bad mood because their car broke down or this happened or work didn't go well. And I'll, you know, that's just part of life. And while there's some truth to that, from a Christian perspective, it's, it's a little bit limiting because it's, whether you know it or not, you're kind of pushing God to the side and saying, well, it's just life. It's just the way life is. And God's not really involved. But from a Christian perspective, from a Christian worldview, we should always see God involved. And it takes practice to think that way. And it takes a change of perspective. It, it's learning to look at life through the lens of my God is in control. My God is sovereign. He is providential. Nothing happens by chance, as Tony Evans just said, that he is working behind the scenes in, in ways that we don't know. And we've got to be careful that we don't lose that perspective. Um, and some of us maybe have never even had that perspective that God is at work and that God is in control. So I want us to wrestle with that this morning. And we're going to really dig into this idea of living by faith, not by sight. We're all familiar with that idea. We're familiar with this passage. We're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Again, coffee, coffee mug verse, put it on a coffee mug, put it on a plaque, stick it on your wall, stick it on your desk. But do you believe it? Do we live it? Do we really live by faith and not by sight? We, because we're human, we tend to live by sight what we can see, what we can feel, what we can touch. And living by faith is what we've been called to do as Christians. And everything in our society goes against the idea of living by faith. And, and once again, in this story, as we read it in just a second, we're going to see that living by faith requires a different kind of perspective that looks beyond the circumstances. What you can initially see and to have faith that while this is what I see, God is at work. God is doing something I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm reading right now through the life of David. And I, um, yesterday I was reading in chapter 30 in 1 Samuel, which is the story of David. Uh, David is running from King Saul. David's been anointed the next king of Israel. The only problem is he's not yet on the throne of Israel because Saul's still the king of Israel. So Saul's been trying to kill David. So David's on the run to escape Saul. He's run to King Achish, who is the king of the Philistines. And David and his 600 men and their wives and families are living in Ziklag, which is a Philistine city that the king has given to them. And for the last 16 months, he's been living in Ziklag. He has been going on raids against the enemies of Israel. But when he comes back from his raids, he's been telling the king of the Philistines that, oh, I've been attacking all your enemies. So the king of the Philistines thinks, well, he's turned against the Israelites. He's now on my side. And David has put himself in a situation that is not really good. You ever done that? You ever made a decision without God's input and you find yourself in a situation that ends up not being really good? Well, David at this point thinks everything's good because he's got this safety zone he's living in. He's able to go and attack the, the enemies of Israel, but he doesn't have to worry about being killed by Saul because Saul's not going to go into the Philistine territory. 
But something happens. The Philistines and the Israelites go to war. And guess what? King Achish goes to David and says, hey, I need you to go to battle with me. Who are we fighting? Oh, we're fighting Saul and the Israelites. So David and his 600 men suddenly find themselves marching towards the battlefield with the king of Achish, and he's got two choices. When the battle starts, I can turn on King Achish and fight him, but Saul's going to still kill David. He's got two enemies now. Or he can turn against the people of Israel, fight with King Achish, and probably lose his right to become the king of Israel. So he's in a predicament. And guess what happens? The Philistine troops, commanders, turn on David and turn on King Achish and go, what are you smoking? What are you thinking? This is the guy that killed Goliath. This is the guy that slew many of our own people, and you're going to let him go into battle with us? He's going to turn on us, get him out of here, send him home. So David gets sent home. Why do you think that happened? God. I believe God sent him home. I believe God protected David and kept him from doing what he shouldn't have, do, shouldn't have done. And David was not living by faith. He was living by sight. He thought, Saul's against me. Saul's going to kill me. I'm going to go escape to the Philistines. He'd have done this once before and it didn't work out. And he did it again. And it wasn't going to work out. And, and what's really interesting about not living by faith, guys, is it always has consequences. So David gets to escape this trauma of having to go into battle with the enemy and either turn on him or turn on his own people. He gets to go home with his troops. He gets home to Ziklag, and guess what's happened? The Amalekites have attacked his city, plundered it, burned it, and taken everybody captive. And the way chapter 30 ends is, and the men of David prepare to stone him. Things didn't go too well for David. Why? Because David wasn't living by faith. He was living by sight. He wasn't trusting God. That's why this, this is so important for us to dig into and to wrestle with this morning. So let's read chapter 6. If you want to look at it in your notebook, it's on page 73. Again, we're uh, going to be in the ESV. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, you can imagine, anybody ever read the book of Chronicles? Our book of Chronicles? If you haven't, if you ever need to sleep, read it, okay? This is a book, it's basically a historical document. And he can't sleep, so he asks it to be read to him, because what does he want? I want to sleep. So it says in verse 2, And it was found, written, how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing's been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men said, told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. 
And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And this is really, where it really gets fun. And Haman said to himself, hmm, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be, be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so, do, do so to Mordecai the Jew. I love that. <laughs> nothing like payback. Who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. You can just hear the air get sucked out of this guy's life. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. This time he's not bragging. Remember the last time he bragged about how great he was? Then the wise men and his wife's arrest said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now, isn't that interesting? This is the same group of friends and the same wife who before told him, Hey, build a gallows, have him hung on it. Their advice has changed slightly. If Mordecai is a Jew, you'll not overcome him, but you'll surely fall before him. Pretty fascinating chapter. Well, what's going on here? Well, we're told that on that night, that particular night, the king can't sleep. Now, again, if you're looking at this from a biblical perspective, a, a Christian perspective, if you're looking for God in this story, even though God's never mentioned in the story, your eyes should kind of open up. You should look at this and go, hmm, I wonder why the king couldn't sleep. We don't know. We're not told. Did he have indigestion? I think he probably did because all the guy did was party, eat, and drink. Um, we don't know why he couldn't sleep. Why didn't the king call one of his many concubines to help him with his sleeplessness? He doesn't. What does he do? He calls for the book of the Chronicles, and he has it read to him, and it was found written. Now, why they read this particular section, we don't know. We're not told. But it was read to them how Mordecai had exposed the plot against the king. You remember Mordecai had been sitting at the gate, which was his place where he sat, which is part of his job. And while he was there, he overheard these two guys who guarded the entrance to the palace and the king planning to kill the king, he tells Esther, Esther tells the king, and the king has these two guys killed. But in that story, at that part of the story, it says nothing was done for Mordecai, except what? It got written in a book. And that book would have been put on a shelf and probably never looked at again for years. But it just so happens the king can't sleep, and instead of calling for concubines or calling for a cup of warm milk, he calls for the book of 
the Chronicles, and it just so happens that they read that particular section, and he discovers what Mordecai had done, and he says, what was done for him? What, you, normally a king, if somebody saves your life, you're going to do something, right? Well, he didn't. He did nothing. What honor, what distinction was given to this man to reward him? And before I start coughing, I'm going to take a cough drop. What was done? And they say, nothing's been done. They're looking at the book. The book would have recorded had something been done. Nothing had been done. <coughs> and so the king's, well, we need to do something. And this is, again, where it gets really interesting. Nothing had been done for Mordecai, even, even though Mordecai had saved the king's life. And now when the king can't sleep and he has this read to him and he realizes that nothing was done, he says, who's in the court? Who had made his way to the court? Haman. Why was Haman going to the court? <coughs> what's, he, what's he going there to do? Get Mordecai hung on a gallows, right? He's looking for permission to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he has constructed to kill him. So he's going there with an agenda. We looked at it last week. He gets there. He's standing outside the court. And remember, he's got to go through the same process that Esther did. He can stand out there, but unless the king lowers the scepter and says, come on in, he's a dead man. He can't just walk in. So he shows up with an agenda to have Mordecai hung in a gallows. The king couldn't sleep. He's told that Haman's there. He's looking for anybody to seek advice from. And he says, who's in the court? And they say, Haman. Hmm. What great timing. I think that's what Haman's thinking. Because it's obviously fairly early, either in the morning or late at night. And he showed up. He has no idea that the king's awake, that the king can't sleep. But he shows up and suddenly they see him and say, hey, Haman, the king wants to see you. Great. I get to ask my question. Mordecai's a dead man. I love the timing. See, God, God has incredible timing. Now, I don't always agree with that. I think sometimes God's timing is terrible from my perspective. You know, I, I look at it and I go, okay, Lord, what, what's the deal? What, what, why are you waiting? I've already told you what I need done. I've told you when I need it done, and you still haven't done it. What's wrong with you? But his timing is perfect. It's always perfect. And, and we see that in this story because Haman has an agenda. Haman has showed up for a reason. He wants Mordecai dead. The king couldn't sleep, just read about what Mordecai had done. He had forgotten all about it, moved on with his life. He's reminded. I think he's probably embarrassed that nothing was done for this guy because he's the king and he had his life saved. And so he's decided, I want to do something, but I want somebody to kind of help me. And that's kind of the pattern we've seen with Ahasuerus. He can't make a decision by himself. He's always got to have somebody come in and help him. And so he's looking for somebody. Remember, it's late, either late at night, early in the morning, and there's not a whole lot of people around. And he, well, there's Haman, second most powerful man. And Haman has an agenda, so does God. And that's something you and I need to remember every day of our lives. God has an agenda. God has a plan. And sometimes we don't think he does. And sometimes we think our plan is better than his plan. That's what got David into trouble. But see, God has a plan. And God's going to let you put your plan into action, but you'll reap the results of your plan 
until you reach the point where you're ready to hear God's plan. And you may say, well, God, I thought my plan was pretty good. And he'll say, well, how'd that work out for you? You ready for my plan now? Because my plan's pretty foolproof because I'm God and you're not. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen in this story. So he's there to have Mordecai hanged for one reason. And there he is. Here is Mordecai standing in the court. What perfect timing. King needs somebody to help make a decision. Haman's looking for the king to give him permission to hang Mordecai. What a perfect opportunity. But what does Haman not know? Well, obviously, he doesn't know why the king wants him to come in. He wants to reward him, Mordecai. And this is kind of funny, too, because the king says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? He doesn't say the name. I don't think the king knows what's going on yet between Mordecai and the king, or Mordecai and Haman. That's not been part of the story. As a matter of fact, when Haman went to the king and asked for him to sign the edict that would allow him to kill the Jews, he didn't tell them it was the Jews. He just said, there is a people who are going to cause trouble in your kingdom if we don't do something about them. Will you allow me to enact this edict? And the king gave him a signet ring, and you know the rest of the story. So he doesn't know, the king doesn't know what's going on between Haman and Mordecai. So he says, hey, what should I do for the guy that I want to honor? And this is where you really see the pride of Haman. He makes a really bad assumption. What does he assume? Well, obviously it's me. I'm the second highest guy in the realm. I've just been elevated, promoted by the king. He obviously wants to honor me. Man, this is better than I thought. So not only am I going to probably get to hang Haman, I'm going to get honored by the king, and I get to determine what that looks like. That'd be like if your boss came to you and said, how much money do you want? And what title can I give you? That would be like, you know, just carte blanche. What, what can I do for you financially just to make you happy? You guys would go nuts. That's what he does. And, and you see in this, this, you see in what he gives to the king as, as counsel, it's all self-centered. It's very egotistically driven, but it's, it's all about power, authority, and reward. And he makes this recommendation to the king, thinking one thing, assuming something that is wrong that's going to turn on him in a big way. And it's all driven by what? Pride, arrogance, and as we said last week, godlessness. He's not thinking about God. He's not thinking about anybody but him. And, and it drives what he's about to say to the king. He doesn't stop and go, I wonder who he's talking about. See, his first question should have been, well, who do you want to honor? But he's so egotistical, he just assumes it's me. It's got to be me. He wants to honor me. Well, he says, let royal robes be put on this person. Now, why is that significant? Well, to be royal robes, that means they're robes that the king has worn. They're, it's like, give him some of your clothes. Rich, uh, luxurious, expensive. But what's important is they're royal. They have a signification to them that they are royalty. They're the king's clothes is basically what he's saying. 
I want to wear your suit. I want to wear your clothes. I want to be dressed like you. He says, I want, I want to be ridden on, put on a horse that you have ridden from your royal stable. Not just any horse. I want your horse. And it goes on to say, it's a horse that even has a crown that's the king's royal crowns, signifying this is a royal horse. So he's wearing the king's clothes, riding the king's horse. What is he trying to do? He's presenting himself to the people as what? The king. I'm the king. What does he aspire to? It's pretty out there, right? I want to be king. I'm second highest, but that's not enough. I want to be the highest. I want to be king. I want the king's robes. I want the king's horse. And I want the horse to wear the king's crown. Now, he's smart enough not to say, and I want to wear your crown. Because I think Ahasuerus would have seen through that. But he, he just goes out of his way to say, this is what you need to do to the man that you want to honor. He says, dress him this way. Lead him through the city, through the square, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. He's picturing himself in this position, riding the horse, wearing the robes, having somebody, some royal official leading him, proclaiming this to all the people and having all the people applaud. And I think in his little dream, his little vision as he's sitting there before the king, he's also picturing up on a hill, there's Haman on the spike. Kind of a perfect scenario. I'm on the horse, Haman's on the spike. He won't bow down, I'll hang him. I'll impale him on a spike. And it's just a perfect picture for him of what's going to happen. And then everything goes south on Haman. Because what does the king say? Take everything you just told me and go do it to who? Mordecai. Can you imagine what went through? I mean, he's, he's like in, in the highest place he's ever been in terms of just emotion. Because he's, he's just been able to tell the king what I want you to do for me. And he's not even gotten the, the main thing he came to get was to kill Mordecai. He's now sucked into this void of, man, I'm going to I'm gonna get to ride a horse. I'm going to get, it's your horse. I'm going to wear your clothes. I'm going to have accolades. I'm going to be led in front of, it's going to be great. And then I'm going to get to have Mordecai, Mordecai killed too. And then suddenly, bam, the balloon gets busted. And he says, no, I want you to go honor Mordecai. Go do everything you just said to Mordecai. And it makes me think of this passage in Matthew. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, our, our society does not believe this. We really think you need to exalt yourself. You need to promote yourself. It's all about you. It's all about your agenda. It's all about you climbing the corporate ladder. But no, as believers... It's not about us exalting ourselves. It's allowing God to exalt us at the proper time, but humbling ourselves. Where was Mordecai while all of this is going on? He's at the gate. What's Mordecai wearing? Sackcloth and ashes. Humbling himself before God, before the people. He's at the gate, which is basically his place of business, and he's, he's wearing sackcloth and ashes. 
And I think even though it's late or early in the morning, I think he's there. And he's still in sackcloth and ashes. He's still in mourning. He's in a place of humility. This guy is in a place of pride and arrogance, and it's all going to turn on him. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. See, what's hard for us in the society in which we live as Christians is that we find it hard to humble ourselves. We want to exalt ourselves. If Again, if you were given the opportunity to go into your boss's office and he said, whatever you want, I will give to you. Now think about this. Esther, we just saw last week, Esther, two different times, was talking to the king and the king said, what do you want? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Now if I'd have been Esther, I'd have forgotten all about People of Israel, Mordecai, saving anybody. I thought, half your kingdom? Well, I want half your kingdom. I'd have thought money. I'd have thought wealth. I'd have, but no, she didn't. She didn't take advantage of that opportunity and think, well, it's all about me. What if the king had said that to Haman? What if he'd said, Haman, what, up to half of my kingdom, I'll give you anything. What do you want? What would Haman have done? Man, he'd have had a list as long as your arm. And he would have said, well, I want this and I want this. He just did it. I want royal robes. I want a royal horse. I want a parade in my name. I want to be honored. I want to be... No. We need to learn what it means to humble ourselves before the Lord and let him exalt us. And that's what we see in this story. One man wants to be exalted. The other man's humbling himself. One man thinks he's going to hang the other. The other one is waiting on God to save not only himself, but all his people. He says, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So you got two characters here, Mordecai. Mordecai, after he gets honored and and everything that Haman says has to be done and he does it. He brings in Mordecai. They put the royal robes. He's wearing sackcloth and ashes. They put on the royal robes. They parade him. And who gets to parade him? Who gets to lead the horse? It's Haman. What a scene. Through the streets that next morning, proclaiming before him, thus does the king wish to do for those he wants to honor. And he's leading him through the city. Here's Mordecai. I think Mordecai must have been like in shock. Like one minute he's in sackcloth and ashes at the gate. The next time he's wearing the king's robes. He's on the king's horse being led by none other than Haman. He's like, what in the world just happened? How did this happen? But what's interesting is when it's done, it says that Mordecai went back to the king's gate. What did Mordecai do? He put back on his sackcloth and ashes. And he went back to doing what he was doing when it all started. He, he returned to thinking about his people and their fate. He didn't let it go to his head and go, man, I just got paraded in front of all the people. He didn't snub his nose at Haman. He didn't, you know, ha, 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 you know. That's what I'd have done. Loser. No, he, he got off the horse. He took off the robes. He put back on his sackcloth, his ashes, and he went back to doing what he did in the beginning. Praying for, caring for, mourning for the fate of the people of Israel. What about Haman? What did Haman do? Haman went home in mourning. A failure. Disappointed. Dejected. See, 
Mordecai didn't go to the king wanting to be lifted up. Mordecai went to God, lowering himself before God, asking that he would deliver his people. Haman went to the king to be, have Mordecai lifted up on a spike, but he gets humbled. He gets lowered. He gets diminished. And the king doesn't know anything about any of what's going on between the two of them. It's not like this was the king's plan. The king just had something read to him and thought, well, I need to honor this guy. Is anybody in the palace? Well, there's Haman. Haman, come on in. I need your advice. He gets the advice. He tells him to enact it. And he has no idea the repercussions. I think he just went back to sleep. But who's behind all of this? See, the title of this, His Wonders to Perform, what I want you to understand that all of this, the king's insomnia, that he chose to have the book of the Chronicles read to him, that what was read to him happened to be the story about Mordecai's exposure of the plot. All of it is a wonder of God. That Haman showed up with the intent to kill Mordecai, based on the advice of his wife and his friends, is the wonder of God. It's a miracle. It's the providence of God. God is behind every single part of the story. And, and see, I know it's a Bible story, and the tendency goes, well, it's a Bible story. It has to work out that way, or it wouldn't be in the Bible. But see, your life is a Bible story. My life is a Bible story. Why? Because God is in my life. God redeemed me. God saved me. His Holy Spirit lives within me. He's got a plan for me. He's got a future prepared for me. The same thing for you. And your life is a story of God's wonder. The very fact that you're here and that you're saved, if you are saved, is the wonder of God. The fact that God has something in store for you and that he's working behind the scenes in ways that you can't see is the wonder of God, just like it is in this story. And the way this story ends is pretty interesting. Because he goes back home, he's depressed, he goes back and he brings in Zeresh and all his friends, tells them what happened, and, and what his wife says to him, what they say to him is diametrically opposite of what they said before, is if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Where's that coming from? One of, the, one of the guys uh, who attends this morning wrote me last night and said, hey, I'm anxious to hear how you're going to address this verse. Here's what I think. I think Zeresh, I think his friends, they're called wise men. And that term in the Hebrew is, is wise men. They're wise, they're counselors, they've got earthly wisdom. And they realize something. They realize, and I think where they're getting this from is from God, not that they're seeking God, but I think they are given the insight to understand that there's something going on here that's not of this world. They knew all along, she knew the last time she talked to him about having him hung on a, a pike, that he was a Jew. It's not like she just, oh, he's a Jew? Why didn't you tell me that the first time? No, she knew that. What's changed? She has begun to see the events taking place in Haman's life are not circumstantial and they're not happenstance. There's something supernatural going on here. 
And the Jews have a God, and that God is the one who must be against you, and you're not going to win. See, even the people living in Persia knew the stories of the Hebrews. They knew the stories of the Exodus. They knew the, the, the stories of God giving them the land of Canaan. They knew about David. They knew the history of the Israelites because they They'd been living amongst them for quite a few years. They also knew that their kings had sent them back to their city to rebuild it. And they knew that at one point they had been a formidable people because they had a formidable God. I think that they realized that this is supernatural. The God of the Jews is against you and you will not overcome him. Who? Mordecai. Because of who he's got on his side. They don't mention God. They don't mention Yahweh, but they realize that, you know what? Based on what we see happening, you're not going to win this battle. You are providentially on the wrong side of this equation. And he gets, he, do, he doesn't get encouraged, right? He goes home depressed and he doesn't get encouraged. Well, it looks like you're going to lose. It looks like you're done. It's, his, it's history for you. You will surely fall. I love this in Psalm 141. I look to you for help, O sovereign Lord. You are my refuge. Don't let them kill me. Keep me from the traps they have set for me, from the snares of those who do wrong. Let the wicked fall into their own nets, but let me escape. That passage could apply so well to Mordecai, to Esther, and to the people of Israel at this point in the juncture of this story, that God is going to step in and the traps that have been laid for them by Haman have begun to close in on him, and he is going to lose. Now, see, guys, we live in a society where um, we have so many people against us. Um, I, every morning I listen to a thing called The Briefing by Al Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Seminary. And what he does every morning, I don't know how the guy does it, but every morning, Monday through Friday, he takes the news the, from the, that morning's news, and he unpacks it from a Christian biblical perspective. Christian worldview. And this morning he was looking at what's going on with uh, just uh, the whole abortion issue. And he takes headlines from the Wall Street Journal, the Times, all the different papers. And he says, what's really going on in this article? What's really going on in this situation? And he unpacks it. And as you listen to him, you realize that we are in a major, major battle against forces that are pretty powerful and they're out to destroy us, and they have set traps for us, and they are out to get rid of us as a people. And, oh, you're overreacting. No, it is what it is. Why? Because this world is under the control of an enemy, our enemy, Satan, who wants to destroy every single one of us and everything we stand for. See, I believe if things don't change, I believe the American church is going to lose their tax-exempt status, and when it does, many people will stop giving because what entices them to give is the tax advantage behind it. And the churches will begin to diminish and people will start going to church. And we'll see the fall of Christianity just like you've seen it in Europe. Go to Europe. Try to find a vibrant evangelical church and you will struggle to find one. And it's on its way unless God intervenes. See, traps have been set, but what we have to realize is God is working behind the scenes. But as we saw last week, we have got to start calling out. We've got to start crying out. See, Mordecai humbled himself. Esther humbled herself. The people of Israel humbled themselves. They called out, cried out, and we've got to do the same thing because we need God's help. 
And it closes verse 14, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther prepared. See, what we forget is that Esther had that second, second party plan. And so here's Mr. Depressed Haman, everything's gone wrong, but he's still got to go to the party. You ever had to go to a party when you're depressed? That's fun, isn't it? You've had a bad day at work and you got to go to your own birthday party. And you don't even want to be there. Well, that's what this guy is going to have to do. And we'll read about that next week. But he's going to have to go to a feast. And what's interesting about that particular phrase that he's headed to a feast is that this guy has, has just been addicted to nothing but self-adulation. Why did he want Mordecai killed? Because he's the only guy that wouldn't bow down. He's all about him. He's so self-important. He's so prideful. He's so egotistical. And that balloon has been popped. And now he's got to go to a feast. Proverbs 1, 29 through 31. They hated knowledge. They chose not to fear the Lord. They rejected my advice. They paid no attention when I corrected them. Therefore, they must eat the bitter fruit of living their own way, choking on their own schemes. See, what we have to realize and remember and rest in is that all the enemies we have around us that stand so vehemently against us and what we stand for will one day choke on their own schemes. Now I'll say that to you, to, you know, so that you, you can gloat and go, yeah, great. I love payback. No, it's that your God's in control. Your God has a plan. Your God is working. Don't panic. Don't worry. Cry out. Speak up. And then wait to see what God's going to do. So here's your questions. All based on that poem that we read. Here's what I want you to do. It's on page 77. It's also in the back of your handout. Spend your entire time discussing the poem by William Cowper. What? Discuss a poem? What is this, literature class? How have you seen God move in mysterious ways in your life? And here's what's going to be interesting is some of you are going to go, oh, gosh, I'm not really sure. Well, he saved me. Well, that's great. What's he done since then? How has God moved in mysterious ways in your life? If you don't have any stories, that's great. Admit it. Would you classify yourself as a fearful saint, which he, uh, you, that phrase he uses in the poem? If so, what does Cowper suggest you do? Are you fear, fearful? Do you walk into life fearful? Do you fear the future? Do you fear for your health, your finances, your family? Are you a fear, fearful saint? What should you do? What do you think it means by behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face? I love that line. See, we look at God sometimes and we see a frowning providence. Oh, God's in control. God's got a plan. I just don't like his plan. If this is his plan, I could come up with a better one than this. We see a frowning providence, but we don't understand that behind it is this smiling face. God loves you. God cares for you. And God allows into your life events that you don't particularly like. Why? Because he loves you and is trying to develop you into the man he wants you to be. And there's not a man in the room who wouldn't admit that your difficulties have probably made you stronger than any success that you've had. And the trials you've been through have made you more faithful as a man of God than anything else that you've been through. But we don't like it and we try to run from it and reject it. So those are your three questions based on that one poem on page 77 or on the back of your handout. Let me pray for you. Father, we've, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would speak to us as we talk, as we share and, and discuss the concept of your sovereignty, your providence, your love for us and how that love shows up in ways that we don't understand. 
and sometimes don't even appreciate. But more than anything, I pray that as we talk around the tables, that the conversation would be rich and honest and open and gracious, and that, Father, we would walk out of here as men who look for and expect to see your wonders in our lives every single day. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have fun, guys.